Hello, hello. Thank you, David. Good morning, Genesis. Thank you, Fred. I think that was Fred. Recognize your voice. I realize the front uh, two rows are usually very scary rows to sit in, so <laughs> one day we will grow and there will be people who have the courage to take on the front row. Rob Rabe? Not today in the front row, but the second row, so baby steps. But here comes Suze. There you go. Everyone uh, say hello to my friend uh, back there, Sarah. She's going to be doing some uh, artwork. So, Sarah, hello. I don't think really Sarah knows that you guys actually care that she's here. So that was pretty weak. Come on, Sarah. There you go. Well, this is it. Uh, we have been walking through uh, Jesus' preaching uh, on the Sermon on the Mount uh, for nearly five months. Uh, and today is the last message that actually Jesus preached uh, to the thousands upon thousands upon thousands uh, that were there listening to him that day. Uh, last week, uh, Jesus put before us a decision of which way is your life going to go? Uh, you can either walk the wide road. It's very spacious. It's got a big gate. Uh, there's a lot of people on it. It's a very populated road, uh, but it's a road that ultimately leads to destruction. And Jesus says, if you go that way, it's a road that ends not very well, ends separated from God forever. Uh, but then Jesus said, there is another way. There is another road. It's got a very narrow gate. Uh, the road itself is very narrow, and there's not many people on that road, but it's the road that leads to life. Uh, so Jesus is going put to put before us uh, our final decision. Uh, we've got a, uh, two different texts uh, that we're going to look at uh, in Jesus' uh, final message here in the Sermon on the Mount. So before I read where we're headed, let me uh, pray for us. And uh, I, I pray that God would just, I don't know where your hearts are right now. I don't know what you're thinking or even where you are in relation to God, uh, but it is our hope uh, and we believe that God knows where you are, and God can speak uh, to exactly where you are right now, uh, that our hearts would hear from him, and we'd respond rightly to him. So, God, to that end, we would pray. I give thanks that you are big enough, uh, God, that you have all knowledge. Uh, God, that you know each and every single person. You created us. You know us by name. Uh, you know us through and through. Uh, God, I just pray that uh, wherever our hearts are, wherever questions we may have that we're wondering or we're asking about you. God, I just pray that uh, today uh, we would really hear one voice, uh, and it would be your voice. Uh, God, so please, uh, through your word, through your scripture, through the Bible, through your story, uh, through Jesus' preaching, uh, specifically here in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts. Uh, so God, if there's anyone who's come in uh, to this place this morning, uh, with anxieties or fears or worries, or their life even just seems out of control and in a mess. Uh, God, I just pray in this, in this next hour or so, uh, we would really connect with you. Uh, we believe that scripture is living, it's active, and it can speak to every heart and every soul. And we just pray in Jesus' name that that's exactly what would happen, and we would respond to you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Who's going to heaven? This is the question uh, that Jesus really uh, wants us to have an answer for. And the question might seem pretty simple, uh, but yet you better have your final answer to this question better be a really good one. 
Uh, and the question is just simply, who is going to heaven? Uh, I'm not asking you to shout out your answer, but I just want you to think of your answer. Uh, what is your answer for why you would be going uh, to heaven? I think this is probably one of the, I think, the actually toughest verses uh, in the entire Sermon on the Mount, uh, what I'm about to read, because uh, it begs the question, there are a lot of people who think they're going to heaven, uh, but Jesus says they need to think again. And he says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Let me read that again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus makes pretty clear that only those who do the will of his Father, only do the will of God, will be the ones who actually enter in, enter into his kingdom. Okay, so questions breed more questions. So the obvious question is, well, what's God's will? If the only people who are going to heaven are those who do the will of God, then what is the will of God? And this is where you really have to have an answer. This is one of those things you want to prepare for. This is one of those things you don't want to wing, like stand before God and be like, I'll just make it up on the spot. If there are only people who are doing the will of God are the ones who will actually enter into God's presence, God's kingdom, heaven, then I hope you would say, I want to know. I want to make sure that I am doing the will of God. I think one of the things that people in the 21st century have in common with people in the first century was their answer was really tied up in two words, spiritual activity. This is what Jesus actually goes on to say. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons, perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Just want you to sit with that for a second. The scene that Jesus just painted right there are people who are standing before God, trying to convince God, convince Jesus that they must know them. Look at what I've done. I mean, he, they give a very impressive spiritual resume. I'm, 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 I'm prophesying in your name. I'm driving out demons. I'm performing many miracles. And Jesus looks at that person who gives a spiritual list of activities and says, away from me, I never knew you. I just really want you to sit with that for a second. Can you imagine going through all of your entire life thinking that you're walking the right road, thinking that you are actually in relationship with God because you're doing godly things. You have lots of spiritual activity in your life. And can you imagine spending your whole life only to get to the end of your life and hear God, hear Jesus say to you, I never knew you. I don't, I don't know who you are. And I have this picture that these people are backpedaling like, Lord, Lord, what are you talking about? Like we prophesied. Like, we did all of these great things, all in your name. And Jesus just said, I don't know who you are. 
Can you imagine going through all of life thinking you're walking one way, actually knowing God, doing things for God, and only get to the end, and God says, I don't know who you are. I think one of the scary things about these three verses is this will be the reality not for some, but for many. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, not just a few, not just a handful of people, there will be many people who stand before God and say, God, but look, look at everything that I did. It would be tragic uh, to go through all of life being spiritual, playing the part of one who, who knows God only to get to the end and hear Jesus say, I don't know who you are or away from me, I never knew you. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the guy that stands before God and hears God say to me, Michael Davis, I never knew you. I don't want to be that guy. So how can I know now, today, that that's not the road that I'm going to walk? That's not the road I'm currently walking. And I really want you to know this. It would be such a tragedy to live life thinking you know God as seen in your spiritual life, but only to get to the end. And God says, Jesus says, I just don't know who you are. So how do you not be that guy? How do you not be that man or that woman? And Jesus has already given the answer of do the will of God. That's simple, right? So I'll go back to my earlier question. What on earth is the will of God? Because I don't want to miss this one, and I certainly don't want to mess it up. So the will of God, I'm going to give you two things under the category of what Scripture says, this is God's will, okay? Number one is look to Jesus for your salvation, not your spiritual activity. Look to Jesus for your salvation, forgiveness of sins. Look to Jesus for your salvation to make you right, bring you into a peaceful relationship with God, not your spiritual activity, not your spiritual performance, not your spiritual pedigree, not your spiritual resume. Look to Jesus alone for your salvation. This is what uh, the Gospel of John says. Chapter 6, starting at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Okay, very important verses here. This is the will of God, the one who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on that last day. So Jesus, God gave to Jesus a very clear will that he would not lose any that God had called. And then the last verse 40, for my Father's will is this. Okay, if you want to know what God's will is, I'm reading it right now. John chapter 6, verse 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, meaning Jesus, and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. So what is God's will? God's will is that you would look to Jesus, and that Jesus would be the one that raises you up on that last day. I have in, in mind, at least in my mind's eye, uh, the picture of a lot of us who are not, we're looking to Jesus, but we're actually looking to, to Jesus to see if Jesus is looking at me. Meaning I'm not looking to Jesus and Jesus alone. I'm looking to see if Jesus is looking my way. 
to see if Jesus is noticing everything that I'm doing. But Jesus, are you checking out what I'm doing right now? Look, I'm prophesying. I'm casting out demons. I'm setting people free. I'm doing these great miraculous works. Jesus, are you noticing me? So I am looking to Jesus, but I'm looking to see if Jesus is actually looking at me. So to those who look to spiritual activity to cover themselves, Jesus looks at you and, see it and says, all I see is a really busy sinner. That's it. Jesus just looks at someone who's very active, but who is still an active sinner. That's it. The equation, uh, I've, this has been helpful to me, but the equation, I'm not a math guy, but I can get this equation. So this is the equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's it. The will of God is that I would look to Jesus and nothing else, and it equals everything. Where I think the equation for some is spiritual activity plus Jesus, that equal, after the equal sign is a Jesus who says, I just didn't know who you are. Because you were really not looking to me, you were looking to your spiritual activity. I want to give a warning. I think the people that are most in danger of looking to their spiritual activity are spiritual leaders. So if you are a spiritual leader, you could be um, a shepherd at this church, could be me, could be a life group leader, you could be on the prayer team, you could be a life group leader, you could be serving on a ministry team or even leading a ministry team. I think the people who are in most danger of falling into this camp of, but look at my spiritual activity, are people who have a lot of spiritual um, activity in their life, and they grow very quickly impressed with, look at all I'm doing. Look at all of the things I'm accomplishing. Look how I'm leading, and, and look how I'm inspiring people and blessing people. and Look at everything that I'm doing. If you're a spiritual leader, you need to be on guard against being impressed with how spiritually active you are. And again, you don't need to be a leader to be spiritually active, but I see it most prominent in leadership. So Jesus sends out his first disciples, uh, the 12, and he says, it's time for you guys to go do what I've been doing, go on mission. And when they come back, they give a report to Jesus, and this is what they say in Luke chapter 10. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So they're coming back so excited, so fired up, like, Jesus, look, this is amazing. The demons are listening to us. And this is Jesus' response. You'd think he would say, you, like, you are impressive. Well done. Like, you think that Jesus would clap for them, applaud them, and just say, this is amazing. How did that happen? Jesus says this. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have to think Peter was probably thinking, man, Jesus needs to work on his listening skills. Because we just said we're doing all these great things. People are getting free. And he just, what is Jesus talking about? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. They must have been utterly confused. And this was what Jesus did not want them to be confused about. 
is being impressed with their spiritual activity. He goes on, I've given you authority to trample snakes, scorpions, and overcome all power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Then he says in um, verse 20, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus did not applaud them. He did not clap for them. He did not say, well done. You're an amazing group of people. Way to go. Keep up the good work. He said, I saw Satan become very impressed with himself, and he fell, and he fell hard, and a lot fell with him. Jesus says, if you're going to rejoice in anything, don't rejoice in successful spiritual activity. Rejoice in one thing that your names are written in heaven. Be joyful that your names are tattooed, as it were, in heaven. I think one of the most grotesque, if I can use that word, sins, is the one who is spiritually prideful. The one who looks upon themselves, their activity, and ultimately they become very impressed with themselves. Jesus' audience, the Pharisees, this is something that Jesus told them because they were spiritually impressed with themselves. Luke 18, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. This was his prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Okay, so you might say, well, that's totally not me. I don't stand and pray like I'm thankful I'm not like that tax collector. But I think actually what we do do is we pray, God, I thank you that you're doing this in my life and I just thank you that I'm not like that person over there. And rather than looking to Jesus, we start to compare ourselves. Well, at least I'm not like that. At least I'm not struggling or sinning like that person over there. It's never helpful to compare ourselves to anyone because we always compare ourselves down rather than comparing ourselves up, meaning looking at Jesus. Jesus says, goes on in his parable, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Can you imagine being the religious guy hearing this? Wait a minute. This guy's going to be justified before God, and I'm not? This is a guy who thought he was walking the right road, doing the right things, performing the right spiritual activities. But Jesus says, there is one man here in this story who's going to be justified before God, and it's not you. It's this guy over here who can't even look up to heaven because he's just so overwhelmed and says, I'm just a sinner. God, would you please have mercy on me? What justifies us before God is not spiritual activity. Never, ever. What justifies us before God is God's mercy, the righteousness of Jesus, not ours. I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Edwards, but um, a very just powerful, well-spoken pastor, well-written author said this about spiritual pride. I was very convicted when I read this. It said, spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others 
Whereas a humble saint is so suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart. The spiritually proud person is apt to find fault with other saints, that they are low in grace, and to be much in observing how cold and sad they are and being quick to discern and take notice of their deficiencies. But the exceedingly humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about it that he is not apt to be very busy with others' hearts. A spiritually proud person, someone who's grown impressed with themselves and their spiritual activities, looks upon themselves and is impressed and looks upon other people and says, why can't they just work as hard as I do? Why can't they pray as hard as I do? Why can't they read as much as I do? Why can't they serve? Why can't they give? Why can't they do as much as I do? That's a spiritually proud person. The spiritually humble person looks at himself much like the tax collector and said, God, please just have mercy on me because I'm just a sinner. Is so consumed, concerned with his own sinful heart that he just keeps coming again and again to God. The key to overcoming spiritual pride, <clears throat> I think, is this. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day, throughout the day, all the time. I think the Apostle Paul understood this really well when he said in 1 Timothy, <clears throat> here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. How often do you say that to yourself? Jesus, thanks for saving me. I didn't deserve it, but you chose to save me. How often does it come to your heart, to your mind? This is Paul, okay? If anyone had any right to be impressed with himself, I'm going to guess Paul would probably be a guy who could have been impressed with himself. He's planting churches. He's writing letters. Talk about a guy performing miracles. Paul was cream of the crop. But Paul was not a spiritually proud person. He was a spiritually humble person. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. Thank you, Yifong. So Jesus came looking not to see who had the most impressive spiritual pedigree, but he came to seek and save sinners. And this is what I love about the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. I don't have to try to impress God with how I work for God. I don't have to try to hope that Jesus is looking my way, looking at my spiritual performance and saying, wow, that Michael Davis, he's a pretty sharp character. He's got his stuff together. The good news of the gospel is that I'm looking to Jesus, and that's it, and I can just receive everything that Jesus has for me. Not because I've performed for him, but because he loves me. And that's the same of you. So I said the will of God is to look to Jesus and Jesus alone. And the second aspect of God's will, and I don't want you to miss this, is the will of God is that we would be sanctified, okay? Maybe a big theological word there. So think about sanctification as that we would actually start looking more and more like Jesus, not so much ourselves. That's sanctification in a nutshell, is that we would look more like Jesus and not just a better version of someone else that we're comparing ourselves to. Well, I'll outserve that person. I'll outwork that person. I'll outpray that person. I'll outgive that person. Sanctification means that we would be looking more like Jesus. This is what 1 Thessalonians says. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. 
Okay? And then Paul, writing this letter, jumps right for where uh, this church was actively engaged. And I think it's relevant to us as well. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual sin or sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. For God did not call us, this is sanctification, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives us his Holy Spirit. So if you don't like that teaching, you can say, well, Michael, I disagree with that. Well, I would just say to you, well, you're not disagreeing with me, you're disagreeing with God. God's will is that you would pursue holiness, that you would practice holiness. Again, not spiritual activity, but you would pursue and practice holiness, that you would be made to look more and more like Jesus. And the beauty of when I'm looking more and more like Jesus is it frees me up not to serve in hopes that Jesus is looking at me and I can impress him. I can actually begin to serve because God's given me so much that I just want to give back to other people, not as a way to get something from God, but because he's given me so much. Does that make sense? I can serve not to get something, but because I've been given so much. God's will for you, that you would look to Jesus for your salvation and Jesus alone. God's will for you is that you would be sanctified, that you would pursue holiness, pursue purity, that you would pursue looking more and more like Jesus. All of us are going to stand before Jesus one day. What are you going to say? Some, Jesus says many, will say, but Lord, Lord, look at what I did. Look at what I accomplished. Here's my, here's my resume. Here's my list. Here's my works. Jesus will say, I just, I don't know you. Or you can stand before Jesus and say, Lord, thank you for all that you did because it was enough. I think that is probably the hardest teaching in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. It would be tragic to walk through life thinking you're walking on the right road, doing the right things for the right reasons, only to get to the end and hear Jesus say, you missed it. You missed me. Your eyes and your heart were on the spiritual activities, your spiritual performance. They were not on Jesus. Spiritual activity, spiritual performance, spiritual pedigree is never a substitute for actually knowing Jesus. This is the promise uh, that Jesus gives in 1 John, or that God gives to us. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. I'm going to heaven not because I've impressed Jesus or God with anything in my life. It's been very unimpressive. But because God's revealed to me his will, that I look to Jesus and Jesus alone and that I am being sanctified, made more and more to look like Jesus. You've heard of the song Amazing Grace? John Newton uh, wrote this song, Amazing Grace, and this is a quote from uh, the author of Amazing Grace. <clears throat> if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, 
to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had thought to meet there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. I thought that was pretty helpful. If I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders. First, to meet some I had not thought to see. Second, to miss some I had thought to meet there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. Many will say, but Jesus, I knew you. And Jesus will say, I don't know you. I don't want anyone to walk out of here confused, thinking anything other than doing the will of God is what makes us right with God, and looking to Jesus is the will of God. Jesus finishes his preaching, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, by painting a very potent, tangible picture of two houses. I'm going to finish this with this because this is after this, there's nothing more in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the last thing that Jesus says that Matthew records <clears throat> in this sermon. It's a great picture. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. They always tell you in preaching classes, uh, I don't think Jesus ever took preaching classes, but classes I took always told you to finish on a really upbeat, positive, great, encouraging note. Not just to make people feel good about themselves, but to remind them of God's great promises. Jesus apparently did not take the class I did, because the last thing that Jesus says, and it fell with a great crash, done. Two houses. One built on a rock, and it stands well. One house built on, on sand, and it fell with a great crash. For five months, we've walked through this Sermon on the Mount. I imagine this teaching was done at least over a week or at least a weekend. And Jesus comes to the conclusion of the matter. And the final question that Jesus asks his audience, and he asks of us, what are you going to do with what I've just told you? You've just heard everything that Jesus said. And I realize that some of you might be for the first time, and you're like, I missed the last five months. The beauty of this is you're here today, and you just heard something that Jesus said, meaning you heard that spiritual activity is not a substitute for a relationship with Jesus. So what will you do with what Jesus just said today? Some of you have had the benefit of being here for five months listening to Jesus preach. Jesus' question, what will you do with all that Jesus has said? There will be some who will put it into practice. If you're that person, Jesus says you're a wise man, a wise woman. If you are one that appreciates what Jesus has just said, but you'll continue to live life as seems best to you, Jesus says you're a fool. There's a wise man who listens to Jesus and then practices what Jesus said. And then there is a fool who says, yeah, that was good. That was helpful. 
but ultimately walks away from what Jesus said and says, I'm still going to figure this out on my own, or I'm going to do my own thing my own way and my own timing. If that's you, Jesus clearly says, you're a fool. So are you going to be a wise man or woman, or are you going to pursue the role and play the part of a fool? How do you know? How do you know if you're the wise person or if you're the fool? Jesus clearly says there is one way that you can know. What happens to you when the storm hits? Do you fall apart or do you stand firm? Jesus' test was if you're a wise man, you will stand strong, you will stand well, you will stand firm when the storm comes. But if you fall apart, you crumble, total destruction, you fall with a great crash, Jesus says you're really playing the part of a fool. One life will stand, one will crash. If you haven't gotten the metaphor yet, the house is your life, okay? Just want to be clear. He's not talking about actual construction projects here. He's talking about the construction project called your life. One house, one life, built on rock, solid foundation. One house, one life, built on sand. The danger of this is they both look identical. There's a lot of our lives in here that look identical. We can sing. We can worship. We can give. We can serve. We can do so many things. Our lives look identical. But what sets apart the house is what sets apart the life, our life, from someone else's is the storm. What becomes of you when the storm hits? And if you don't think, you don't believe in storms, just live another few, few more days. I don't think I have to work hard at all to convince anyone in here that the storms of life will come. And many of you actually might be in a storm right now. Jesus says the foolish person ignores what Jesus has said and does not put into practice. What's it really look like actually to build your life on sand? Like why would anyone, in their right mind at least, why would anyone build their life upon shifting sand? Why would you do it? Well, number one is you'd be a moron to do it. That's the actual Greek word is moro, which what we get, moron. So Jesus says this person, we say foolish because it sounds a little bit better, but Jesus says you're actually a moron <laughs> if you were to build your life upon sand. So why would we ever build our life on sand? Well, some of us are just morons, okay? Number two, and I think this is probably true for more, is it's easy. It's quick. It's convenient. It's comfortable. Building my life on sand, it's, it, my house can go up real quick using the house metaphor. Fool is really more concerned not with how well the house or what the house is founded on, the fool is just really more concerned with how pretty it looks. The fool is really just more concerned with how do I look on the outside? Because both houses look the same. You can't see the foundation. If you didn't know, the foundation is underground. So they look the same. And the fool, the moron, is the one who just says, I care about appearances. 
You ever just drive around this area, Woburn, Lexington, Winchester, Arlington, Medford, and you see all these amazing, huge, huge homes. And you drive by and you're just like, wow, they must have it so easy. Look at how big and beautiful it looks from the outside. But see, I've been in places like that. And I've met some of the most broken, empty people. And that's not casting judgment on people who have big houses. It's just the reality of something can look really nice on the outside, but on the inside, it's a mess. This is the fool, moron, the person who just wants to build their life around appearances. If that's you, just be honest with yourself for a second and answer this question. Isn't it getting old or don't you just get tired of when someone says, hey, how are you doing? Isn't it getting old always saying, oh, I'm doing great. Everything is wonderful. And as soon as the words come out of your mouth, you're like, man, if they only knew how messed up I really was. Or when someone asks you, hey, how's your marriage doing? Oh, it's, it's going great. It's going well. We're the happiest couple ever. They should build a reality show around us and just follow us around to see our joy. But as soon as that answer flies out, man, I hope my wife doesn't really tell him what our marriage is really like. Or I hope my husband doesn't really let on to what really happens in our home. Hey, how's your walk with God? Oh, it's great. I'm, I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. Man, if they only knew, I don't even spend any time with God. Like, I hope that today might actually be your day where you just come and say, you know what, my foundation's not as firm. I'm done wearing the mask. I'm done playing the part. All is not well. My foundation is actually pretty shaky. If that's you playing that part, then let today be the day that says, you know what, I'm done playing a part, and I'm done trying to build a life upon sand, and I want to start building my life on something a little bit firmer. First century, uh, I'm not a builder, uh, but I do know that if you want to build something that really is strong, really solid, that will last no matter what storm comes, you got to dig down pretty deep. In the first century, they would dig down at least 10 feet beneath the sand to hit the bedrock. You know how how deep 10 feet is? That's pretty deep. I mean, I remember when we were building a deck at our house, I think we had to go three feet uh, to get get below, uh, what's it called, Uh, the frost line. I was like, dang, three feet. Just shovels, that's it. I can't imagine having to dig down and dig down and dig down 10 feet. But people knew if they wanted a life, a house that would stand firm, they needed to build their house on bedrock, on a solid rock, on a solid foundation. So if you're going to be that man, that woman that's not playing the part of the fool, but that's going to play the part of being a wise man, a wise woman, Jesus says, build your life upon me. Isn't that such an amazing invitation that Jesus would say, if you just listen to what I say and then practice what I say, you're on the rock. Who talks like that? Isn't that phenomenal that Jesus just says, if you will listen to what I say and then practice what I say, your life will be built upon the rock. What does it practically look like to build your life upon the rock so that when storms come, and they will, you will stand? 
just listen to what Jesus has said. I'll give you a quick, very quick review. This is what he's been saying. To hate someone is to murder them. So repent of a heart that's filled with hate. Jesus said that. Jesus also said to lust after a woman is to commit adultery. So repent of a lust-filled heart. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus said, forgive people when they sin against you. Jesus said, store up treasures for yourself in heaven. Don't make gold your God. Jesus said, don't worry. That's, that's Jesus. He said, don't worry. The fool will be like, oh, I've got so much to worry about. The wise person would say, Jesus said, don't worry. I heard it. I listened to it. I will practice it. I will trust God. Jesus said, don't judge others. Don't look at the speck in someone else's eye. Deal with the log in your own. Jesus said, seek God first. Seek his kingdom first. Seek his will first, not yours. That's a small sampling of what Jesus said over the last five months. You heard it. You listened to it. And Jesus says, don't only listen to what I said, but put into practice what I said. Practice living out exactly what Jesus said. Jesus had a brother, a half-brother. His name was James. And James wrote this. He wrote a letter called James after himself. James chapter 1 says this. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. What a great verse. Don't just listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And then James gives a very a, a beautiful picture of what the person looks like who just doesn't do this. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. This is a very confused person who goes in his bathroom in the morning. He looks at himself and be like, you look familiar. I think I know you. And then he walks out and be like, oh, wait, who's that guy again? And got to go stand in front of the mirror again. Ah, yes, I, I think I have. And it's just this endless cycle of standing in front of the mirror, walking away and be like, I forgot who I am. I need to go look in the mirror again. Jesus, or James says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, meaning God's word, Jesus' word, and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, guess what that man, he's blessed. In some things, no, in all things. I heard it, Jesus. I've been listening to you, Jesus. I will practice, Jesus, everything that you have said. I will forgive. Why? Because Jesus told me to forgive. When someone slaps me, I won't slap back. Why? Because that's what Jesus said. When someone hates me, I will pray for them. Jesus has said so much. You've heard it. You've listened to it. You're listening to it now. It's a question of, will you practice what Jesus has said? Put it into your life. If you have a life built on a very firm foundation, you will listen to all of what Jesus has said, and then you will practice it. Finish with this. Go back to an earlier question that I asked you. How do you know which foundation your life is being built on right now? How do you know? 
Jesus says the storms, just look at the storms. When they come, what becomes of you? And just to be clear, sin is not a storm. Your issue of struggling with whatever the sin might be is not a storm in your life, okay? That's just called sin. Don't get the S word confused. Your struggle to overcome whatever the sin is is not like a storm in your life. That's just you being a sinful person. I think what Jesus is talking about of storms is the tragic news of life, the loss of life, really, really bad news, the loss of a job, a broken relationship, a future that you thought was going this way, and then all of a sudden it fell out from you. When those storms hit, and they will hit, what becomes of you? I think we tend to say, and I hopefully will say this well, I don't want you to examine your first reaction. So like when the storm hits and you look at someone and you're like, oh, I saw Michael worry. Clearly his life is built on shifting sand. Oh, I saw Michael get frustrated in that situation. Clearly his first reaction determines the foundation of his life. If your first response, your first reaction is sin, then repent of that. That's wrong. But I don't want you just to look at your first response, your first reaction to when the storm hits, because I don't think that's necessarily revealing of what your foundation really is. Would any of us look at Jesus and say, well, Jesus, the night before he went to the cross, was praying so hard that he started drops of blood coming from his forehead, begging God for God to take this cup away from him? Well, clearly, Jesus did not have a firm foundation. I don't think anyone would accuse Jesus of not having a firm foundation. So it's not necessarily what is your first response, what is your first reaction. So when the storm hits, what's your final conclusion? Okay? When the storm hits, when it comes, when the tragedy strikes, when the bad news, the loss of job, an uncertain future, a busted, broken heart relationship, when the storm hits, not what's your first reaction, but what is your final conclusion? Jesus said at the end of the day, blood dripping down his forehead, tears coming down, not my will, but yours be done. Is your final conclusion when you look in the face of a storm, Jesus, I trust you. This doesn't make sense, but I trust you. I will still walk with you. I will still worship you. I will still serve you. I will still be with you. Is that your final conclusion? Job, if you're not familiar with a man who suffered much but suffered well, this is a few verses from his life. Guy's life was flipped upside down, and he says this, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. I just picture Job, children are dead, boils all over his body, his wife telling him to curse God and die. Like nothing was, this was the epitome of a bad day. And I just, I know Job looks up to heaven, I know my Redeemer lives, and I'm going to see him. I will see my Redeemer in the midst of this storm. He goes on a few chapters later in chapter 23, probably my favorite verses from all of the book of Job. 
I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I don't find him. When he is at work in the north, I don't see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. That is a man who's saying, I'm looking for God everywhere because the storms are coming and I can't see him. I can't hear him. I can't experience. I can't, I can't see God everywhere I look. I can't see him. This was his first reaction, but his conclusion was this, verse 10. But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I'm coming forth as gold. I don't know where he is, but he knows where I am. That's my conclusion. So when the storms hit and I can't see squat except the rain beating down on me, the bad news keeps flooding in, I can see nothing, but he sees me. That was his final conclusion. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. That's not a spiritually proud person. That's not a spiritual, not a guy who's given his, his resume of, well, look what all of I've done. I know who my God is. I know my God knows where I am, and I will continue to walk with him. I will continue to pursue him. If you want to live an unshakable life, you have to have a very firm foundation. You know who your God is. His name is Jesus. It's not a spiritual resume filled with spiritual activity. You know who your God is, and you're building your life upon the words of Jesus and practicing the words of Jesus. The wise man listens to Jesus' words and puts them into practice. The moron or the fool listens to Jesus' words, and does nothing with them. One life will stand, and stand well, and stand firm, and stand forever. And one life will crash, and crash hard, and crash loud. One will stand, one will crash. What kind of life do you want to have? This is the last thing that Jesus said in this text. Build your house on a rock, not on shifting sand. Build your house on a rock. And a life that when the storms hit hard, and they will, you might get wet, but you won't drown. You might get blown around a little bit, even tossed around a little bit, but you won't get blown away. What I love about this painting here the image I had in mind for this picture was the storms are coming and they're hitting hard. Some of you are probably in the midst of it right now. Some of you, a storm might hit tomorrow, and so I'm thankful you're here today. Some of you, a storm might hit a few weeks from now. But when the storms hit, I just want you to know, if your life is built on Jesus, it's not hitting you, it's hitting him. He can take it. It hits the rocks. You might get wet, but you will not drown. You might feel the wind in your hair if you have any hair left, but you will not get blown over. When the storms come, they hit the cross. They hit the rock. They hit Jesus. It's... uh, Decision time. 
This is it. Five months of walking through this story. Walking through the very words of Jesus that he spoke to the masses and he's been speaking to us. Do not go through life thinking that when you meet Jesus face to face, you'll say to him, look at what I did. Because he'll just say, I don't know who you are. Decide now, decide today. Some of you might need to really change directions in life. From a spiritually busy person to a person who's investing now in a relationship with Jesus and that's it. Maybe you've realized you've actually been playing the part of a moron. And it's time to say, I'm done being stupid and I'm going to be a wise man and build my life on what Jesus said and live out what Jesus proclaimed, what Jesus said. So when storms come, they won't hit me, they hit Jesus. I'm going to pray and uh, invite the worship team to come up. But I just want you to sit literally just for a few minutes and just the quietness. And I want you to make a decision. Which way are you going? What are you really building your life on? Don't go just for appearances, thinking that you look good on the outside, but inside you're dying. If you haven't made a decision yet to trust Jesus, start a relationship with him today. Not a relationship with activities, relationship with Jesus. And if you realize that your life because you just looked at some of the storms you went through now or recently, knocked you flat, maybe your foundation wasn't as strong as you thought because it wasn't built on anything but just sand. Just sit with God. I know that God's been speaking to you and speaking to your hearts, not just today, but even over the last few months. Make a decision. Choose today what your life is going to be built upon. Jesus, I just give thanks that you speak. God, you have been speaking to each of us. Jesus, I just pray that uh, in just really a time of just silence, that we could actually, our minds would be quieted, our hearts would be still, and we could really examine where we stand with you. Jesus, if there's anyone, just one, if not many here today, that have been more concerned about appearances and spiritual resumes, I pray that a decision gets made today to do the will of God, which is to look to Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus, if there are maybe just one, if not many, that as they consider the foundation of their life, has been on the shifting sands. And Jesus, I pray today decision would get made to build their life on hearing your word and implementing and practicing your word every day in every situation. I'm going to give you just a time to reflect and uh, we'll worship
but when you're ready, uh, one of the reasons we celebrate communion every single week uh, is to preach the gospel to ourselves and to proclaim the gospel to others, that Jesus Christ came into the world to seek out and to save sinners, which all of us are, that he lived a perfect life, went to a cross to pay the penalty for my sin, for your sin, that if I look to Jesus and Jesus alone, sins are forgiven, I have peace with God and eternal life with God. If you've made that decision to follow Jesus and come and celebrate communion, even if this is your first time or you've just been here recently, there's no requirements of taking communion with us except that you know Jesus and you're looking to Jesus and Jesus alone. So as you pray and as you sit and worship, when you're ready to come and respond, come say thank you to Jesus.